Our scripture today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 to 36. I think it can be found on page 1535 in your pew Bibles. Uh, Yeah, 1535. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with a question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he then be his son? No one can say a word in reply, So, and from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Uh, back before I became a pastor, I was tutoring online for the GRE, and a big part of that test was vocab. Um, so in case you ever need to take the GRE, here's a vocab word for you from the 2018 general test. The word is shibboleth. And it's actually a reference back to a story in the Bible in Genesis, uh, Judges 12. Jephthah was a judge who was fighting against other people in Israel. And when he wanted to find out if someone was on his side, he would ask them to say the word shibboleth. Now, the people he was fighting against couldn't pronounce that word exactly right, and who can blame them? Um, so they would say sibboleth. If someone said shibboleth, they knew he was on their side. Um, but if they said sibboleth, then he would kill them. <laughs> So a shibboleth is something that you say or do that marks you as part of a group. If I say HTTC, a lot of you would have no idea what I'm talking about. But if you're a Commanders fan, you would know that I'm saying hail to the Commanders. (laughs) And the fact that I've said that actually tells you something about me, which is that I'm a Commanders fan. Maybe it means I'm part of your group. So HTTC is a shibboleth. In Seinfeld, there's an episode where Kramer is putting garlic on a salad. And a guy from a game comes up to him and surprises him, and he, hold, uh, and he holds his one hand empty, and the other hand holds the garlic shaker. And at that point, the guy from the game thinks that he's made the sign of the, game, of the game called the Van Buren Boys, because he was holding up eight fingers, and Martin Van Buren was the eighth president. <laughs> so they let him go. That eight-finger sign was a shibboleth, and Kramer accidentally let the game think that he was one of them. Now, we also use shibboleths quite a bit, and they're often a lot less silly than the Van Buren boys. But you've probably seen it a lot in politics. If you say that global warming is a really big deal and we should make it a priority, a lot of people might think that you're a Democrat. If you say that taxes should be lower, a lot of people might think that you're a Republican. Now, those issues have become shibboleths that make people think that you're part of one camp or another. A lot of times when people get mad at you for having an opinion, it's not so much that they disagree with you about the topic itself but because they think that that opinion puts you in the group of people that they don't like. It's not so much, I, think you're, I don't think you're right about this, but your opinion makes you part of a group that I consider my enemies. It's really easy to do, and I bet a lot of your blood pressure went up just when I mentioned those things. <laughs> but shibboleths mark you as part of a tribe. 
then we can often use those shibboleths as a way to know who you shouldn't like. You're saying these things that make you sound like you're part of this group, and I don't like that group, so I don't like you. Now, something really similar is happening in this passage. Jesus had just silenced the Sadducees because he told them that one day all of God's chosen people will be raised from the dead. This was a little bit of a shibboleth in itself. There was a whole big controversy because the Pharisees believed that the resurrection would happen, but the Sadducees didn't. The Pharisees were probably happy that Jesus believed in the resurrection. They had all kinds of run-ins with Jesus in the past, but finally he was saying something that agreed with them. Could Jesus be coming around? He certainly was saying they're shibboleths. Maybe Jesus really was one of them after all. Now, Jesus is a really popular preacher. It would be great to get him on our side. So the Pharisees go to test Jesus. And the question they were asking is, what is the greatest commandment? Now, this might have been a shibboleth, a lot like global warming or taxes are for us when it comes to Democrats and Republicans. There are a whole bunch of different kinds of Pharisees, and they had their own subgroups, just like there's a whole bunch of different kinds of Republicans and different kinds of Democrats. Some of them thought that all the commandments were equal, that you should pay equal attention to them all because they all came from God. Some of them had something like the golden rule, don't do things to people that you wouldn't want done to yourself. And they that summarized the whole law. There were different parties of Pharisees called Hillelites and Shemaiites. Shamaites, hard to say. <laughs> Just like there's different parties of Democrats called the progressives and the moderates. So you see what they're doing here. They're saying, maybe you can say the shibboleths of being a Pharisee, but which kind of Pharisee do you agree with? They're not just satisfied with figuring out whether Jesus agreed with their big Pharisee tribe. They wanted to find out if he was part of one of the many tribes that make up the big Pharisee tribe. They were telling each other, you might be a Pharisee, but God forbid you be that kind of Pharisee. But we do the same thing too. Sure, you might be a Christian like me, but God forbid you be that kind of Christian. But Jesus' answer is really interesting because it really kind of refuses to engage with those shibboleths. And it implicitly tells the Pharisees that their whole question is wrong-headed. The Pharisees were using the Torah all wrong. They were using the law that God had gave them for a bunch of theoretical debates. They were using it to divide people into this tribe or that tribe. So if they had their heads screwed on straight when Jesus said his answer, it should have caused them to really think about themselves. Jesus said that the whole point of the law was to help us love our neighbor and to love God. In fact, he says that the whole law hangs on those two commandments. If you don't love God and if you don't love your neighbor, the whole Old Testament falls down. It's useless without it. Loving God and loving your neighbor is the whole point. But the way that the Pharisees were using the law was the complete opposite of how it was meant to be used. They were using it to divide people. If you don't believe this or that about the law, I don't need to love you because you're in the wrong tribe. No, Jesus says, you're doing it all wrong. There's no point in having a law if you're just going to use it to find reasons to hate each other. But we do the same things, though. We use Christian shibboleths as well. If you believe this thing that I don't believe, you've gone too far, and I don't need to love you. If you support this candidate in the election, you're just wrong and a sinner, and I don't need to love you. The kingdom of this world splits itself up into hundreds and hundreds of different groups and uses the law as a reason to hate other people. 
But Jesus is bringing a different kind of kingdom. Here, we don't split ourselves into a whole bunch of groups just so that we can hate each other. We build bridges and try to love and understand one another. We use the law so we can better love God and love one another, not just so we can find out where we stand on all the controversial issues. Now, when the Gospel of Matthew says the word test in this passage, it means something very specific. The word is only ever used for stuff that the Pharisees and the, and the devil do. It has to do with tempting someone to test whether they will stay faithful to God. In fact, that was the most common use of the word in Jewish literature of the time. Now, of course, the Pharisees probably wouldn't have said that they were doing that, but the narrator of the story does. And that's because the narrator wants you to look back at other times where Jesus is tested in the book of Matthew. This one word is shorthand to remember when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness in chapter 4, and when Jesus is tempted by the Pharisees to give them a sign from heaven in chapter 16. Only a few verses earlier, Jesus gets angry at the Sadducees for testing him. And Jesus really is being tempted and tested here the same way he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Is he going to follow the world's way of doing things, where you take sides and you build tribes and you use the law as an excuse to, from loving other people? Or is he going to follow the new kingdom of heaven? And we have the same temptation every day. When you log on to social media, will you just find the most infuriating thing possible just so that you can get mad at it? When you see lawn signs you disagree with, will you decide then and there never to eat with the people at that house? These temptations are all the more real because we don't have to personally interact with those people if we don't want to. We can sit in our comfortable homes and judge people from afar, constantly assuring ourselves that we are completely different and and we're way better. In fact, seeing bad people actually helps us to think that we're really great. Even better, when the time comes to admit our sins, the anger we felt for some stranger won't even come to mind because we didn't have some kind of blow-up argument with them. But the anger and even the hatred warps our hearts and souls all the same. Jesus says, you you shall not murder, Not, not just you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Anger is addicting and can feel really good to be angry sometimes. It's so addicting that sometimes it makes you happy that other people are evil, because it gives you an occasion to be angry with them and to feel like you're a good person. You can even tell other people all about the terrible thing that the other person did, and you can feel like you're all good people together. But being happy when people do bad things is what demons do. When you feel a little happiness when people do evil, stop yourself right there. You're on the first step of a path that, as C.S. Lewis says, leads you to become a miserable and pathetic demon. The way that Jesus passes this test instead is by asserting that the whole point of God's law is love. If you don't love other people and want what's best for them, the whole thing falls apart. Are we going to follow the world's way or the way of Jesus? Is the law just a tool that we can use to justify our anger, or does it give us the instructions of life and peace that we need to help love our neighbor better? Now, we should confidently tell what God wants from from people from the Bible, but we should do that because we love them and want what's best for them, not because we're angry or because it makes us feel good about ourselves. 
So then we get to the second half of this passage. And the Pharisees were asking Jesus a question, but now it's Jesus' turn, and he's going to turn the tables on them. Jesus asked them, what do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? And here we see something incredibly ironic. The Pharisees were engaging in another one of their th totally theoretical debates. And the Pharisees probably thought that what, what, that was what Jesus was doing here too. But as the readers of Matthew, we know that Jesus really is that Messiah. The Pharisees think that Jesus is inviting them into another totally different theoretical debate about the Messiah. But it's not theoretical at all. The Messiah that they had hoped for for hundreds of years was literally standing right in front of them, asking them some questions. And it sends a bitterly ironic message. While you're squabbling over little theoretical minutiae about God's kingdom, the king is standing right in front of you. While you're busy fighting one another and hating because of the smallest possible reasons, you could miss out on Jesus, even if he's standing right there with you. And Jesus just happens to quote this specific passage to make his point. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Sure, it works on the one level of keeping up the theoretical debate with the Pharisees, but it works on another level too. Don't you see the veiled threat that Jesus is giving here? Who are the enemies that Jesus is talking about? Why does the scripture Jesus quotes just so happen to talk about the enemies of the Messiah? I think as readers, we're supposed to ask the question, have the Pharisees, by misusing the law, actually become the enemies of the Messiah? Again, it's terribly ironic. The Pharisees believed that if they followed the Torah perfectly their whole lives, that God would see their obedience and bring the Messiah to earth. But now, the promised Messiah has come and has nothing to do with their obedience. Even worse, the most important tool they had for bringing the Messiah to earth has become the reason that they are his enemies. They followed the small bits of the Torah to the letter, but they didn't love their neighbor. And so when the promised king finally came to the earth, they did not recognize him. And all of this is consistent with the message of many of the Old Testament prophets. The ones that everybody thought would, be, would obviously be on God's side actually turn out, in the end, to be his enemies. Oh, it's a terrible fate. We should love the rules that God has given us. They are wonderful, and we need them to survive. We should be careful because Satan can use even the, those perfect and beautiful rules as ways to turn us into the enemies of God. Never lose sight of loving God and your neighbor. So this week, take a look at yourself whenever you have some angry feelings about some other people. When people say some shibboleths that mark them as a different group, whether online or in the real world, pause for a minute before you get mad at them. You might have strong moral opinions, and you should. But think for a minute about whether you're using them to love God and love other people, or whether you're using them to divide people into groups so that you have an excuse not to love them. Because if you don't, while you're squabbling over some tiny issue, you might just miss out on Jesus standing right there in front of you. Let's pray. God, give us the wisdom to recognize what it really means to love you and to love our neighbor. We love your laws, but help us to keep a perspective that doesn't use them for hatred, but for love. 
We want to see you, so don't let us miss out on your presence among us. Amen.